Uh, Dr. Michael Spiegel was one of the speakers this past weekend. He's the department chair and associate professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He teaches both historical and systematic theology. He's co-authored and edited several books, including Retro Christianity and a three-volume series titled Exploring Christian Theology. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife, Stephanie, and their three children, Sophie, Lucas, and Nathan. And he just did a, a wonderful job this weekend encouraging us as he, as he talked about the rapture. And he's going to do, a, I, I have a, had a sneak preview first service and just really was encouraged as he talked about the, what, what it means to live, I don't want to give away too much, but what it means to live now in light of, of then, what it means now, to, the practical effect of, of uh, eschatology, of future things on our, on our present life. So please join me in welcoming Mike to our, our stage this morning. So. Thank you so much. Thanks uh, again for having me, for uh, not just having me for that prophecy conference yesterday and the day before, but uh, having me here to give a message, and not just once, twice. Actually, this is the first time I've done two back-to-back messages, so I warmed up with the first crowd, and uh, we'll see what we can do. So that'll be uh, uh, interesting. Um, Now, I became a Christian... Back in uh, 1990, um, the 1990s, let's just let me say it this way, it was a very important decade for Bible prophecy failures, okay? Let's just put it that way. Um, You know, already on the heels of 1980s, we had uh, 88 reasons the rapture will happen in 1988, and when that didn't pan out, 89 reasons the rapture will happen in 1989. We had another book. Uh, called uh, 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. That didn't quite pan out. And then you'd think that they'd wise up in the 90s, but you had that year 2000 thing coming. And that really riled people up. I read a book once that said that Jesus is going to come back in the year 2000, back up seven years, 1993. That's when the rapture is going to happen. Didn't happen, uh, obviously. We had another one dating, setting the date for Christ's return in 1994. We had some, and I mean, it was craziness. And I, being a new believer, uh, was sort of swept up in this end times excitement. And I read and I reread it and, and reread books. We didn't have the internet really back then, not, not in any functional capacity. Uh, so I was relying on television and radio, and I was just devouring it in more or less. Uh, discussing and debating, also known as annoying and irritating people with my newfound love of the end times. Now, everything was going really great. I mean, I was cruising on on the fast lane of end times expectations when all of a sudden this dear, sweet, patient, sweet-natured believer whom I worked with in a uh, a supermarket deli, she kind of forced me to slam on the brakes with a question she asked now, I was standing there and I was going over, hey, and I was reading this, and then they're, they're building the temple. They want to build the temple and they do you know, current events and end times prophecy. And she stopped me and she said, how does that affect how I'm going to live my life today? Huh? Okay, did you not hear me, lady? The trumpet could sound before the end of our shift. And you're asking, how am I supposed to live my life? I mean, talk about narrow-minded and short-sighted. I think that lady actually thinks that the Bible was written for our instruction, our practical application. Weird. I don't know where she got that idea. Okay, that 
short, blunt response, however, got me thinking. Uh, you know, at the time, I couldn't for the life of me imagine that anybody wouldn't be as fascinated by end times things as I was. And so her question, how does that, uh, you know, make me live my life better today, uh, got me reconsidering. You know, since that time, my interest in Bible prophecy, it really hasn't ceased, but I will say it's been put in its proper place. It's been balanced by other vital areas of Christian belief and practice. Uh, and since that shocking response by my coworker, uh, I've had many years to reflect on what should I have said? How should I have answered that question? See, I was asking the question, when will these things be? And she was asking the question, how am I supposed to behave in light of these things? So I wish I knew then what I know now, that God's given us a glimpse into the future, and he really has, but he's given us a glimpse for a reason, and that is not to simply inform us, but to transform us, to change our, our minds and our hearts and our priorities, our attitudes and our actions. He's been given the, us these things for a reason. So this morning, I want to imagine that I have a chance to go back to the deli, to the meats and the cheeses and the salads, and stand with that woman and actually answer the question she asked the way I should have answered it, rather than, huh, you're not interested in Bible prophecy? What's wrong with you? Okay? It's a question that deserves an answer. Or to put it more succinctly, uh, how should I live now in light of then? So turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be primarily looking at most of that chapter, working our way through it. Uh, not word by word, but thought by thought. Uh, and we're going to answer the question, or actually let Paul answer the question, uh, how should we live now in light of then? Now, just a brief little background about the uh, book itself. Uh, who wrote this thing? It's Paul the Apostle. I'm going to continually say Paul, but actually, if you look at verse 1, it really has uh, almost a trio authorship. Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul being the apostles, the primary authority behind it. Silvanus, we know, is, is, in a, is called a prophet. Uh, shows up in both Paul's and Peter's ministry. Um, and then Timothy, this is really the very beginning of his ministry. He is sort of the apprentice or the understudy or the intern of Paul and Silas. And these are the authors behind the book, although Paul is the primary authority. Where was it written and to whom was it written? Well, it was written to the Thessalonians. That's why we call it First Thessalonians. From the city in Corinth. Uh, this church in Thessalonica was a relatively new church, maybe months old. Paul and Silas and Timothy had spent... Uh, a few weeks there, maybe five, six weeks, before they were very rudely booted out and told never come back. Now that didn't apply to Timothy, and so Timothy was able to carry uh, letters back to the church in Thessalonica and fill in some of the gaps that uh, Paul and Silas were not able to teach when they were there because it was cut short. So this was written around A.D. 50, uh, written by, uh, uh, during Paul's second missionary journey, um, remember the first mission, missionary journey, Paul's partner was Barnabas and Mark was sort of the assistant. Um, there was a, a, cha a personnel change, let me just put it lightly, uh, between uh, Barnabas to Silas and Timothy is kind of playing the role of the ministry mentor and helper. 
And so this is probably Paul's second book he wrote. There's some discussion. I think Galatians was written first, and then if you're to read these things in chronological order, 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's second letter. And then what is this thing? What is this? This is a letter of encouragement to persevere in faith, love, and hope while they're awaiting the Lord's return. And we have here, Paul several times mentions explicitly the the three theological virtues, faith, love, and hope. But he also weaves them throughout his whole book, faith, love, and hope. And he also weaves throughout the whole book this expectation of the return of Christ. And so there has to be some kind of relationship between the coming of Christ and these virtues that he wants us to um, to be nurturing. Now, the book spans three tenses. It's really interesting. The first half of the book, if I were to outline it, deal with living, learning from the past while you're living in the present. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul looks at the past, look, reflects on the ministry that they had with them when they were there, how they turned to God from idols, and uh, um, how they become an example of faith, love, and hope. And the purpose of that is to encourage them to persevere in those things. You've been doing well, keep it up. But then, chapters 4 and 5, the emphasis really goes to the future. Living in the present while you are looking to the future. And how does the future impact how we're supposed to live today? That's his uh, address in the second half. And so, we Christians, like the Thessalonians, we live in a very unique sort of vantage point as believers who have been given a glimpse of the future. Not only, I mean, normal people living in the dark, they can look at the past. They usually don't, but they look at the past. They can gather lessons from the past as they are making wise decisions in the present. But we as believers, not only do we have that, we can actually learn lessons from the future. So in a sense, Paul's saying, don't forget the future. It has a bearing on how you live in the present. So let's jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 5 um, and take a look at what Paul says. Now, it's very important to understand that Paul, just flip back to chapter 4, Paul just got done talking about all the things we sang about just in the last song. Uh, the, glory, uh, the glorious coming of the Savior, the trumpet's going to sound, um, cr- the dead in Christ, those who are asleep in Christ are going to rise first in glorious bodies. Uh, we who are still alive are going to be transformed and caught up together with the Lord in the air, and we are going to be forever with the Lord. That's some really profound and exciting stuff. And the question that is probably on everybody's mind at this time is the question I had back in the deli. Wow, when is this going to happen? Not the question, great question, wrong question. Because Paul says in verses 1 and 2, take a look at that, of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Uh, In other words, we've already dealt with this when I was with you. I gave you some instruction on end times things. And with it, I gave you the caveat that... You don't know the day and the hour. You don't know when this is going to happen. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Um, Now, I've had, when we were in Bible college, we had our apartment robbed one time. Uh, Not a pleasant experience. If you've ever been broken into, it it makes you sick. Uh, 
But I'll tell you what the thief did not do. Excuse me, I'll be uh, here uh, while you're gone next Tuesday. I'm going to break in and just mess things up and steal a couple things. Uh, you might want to be aware of that. Uh, could you leave the door unlocked? Okay, they don't do that, do they? They come when you least expect it. And they're there and they're gone. And so this is the idea. At any moment, he can knock you off your feet. And so look at verse 3 then. While people are saying, peace and security. Ah, you know, when there's peace and security, what do you do? Yeah, just relax. You know, you don't have to worry about anything. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, I recall the, uh, the birth of my, my first child, my daughter, Sophie. Um, she was uh, uh, breached. She was turned around. And the doctor, our OBGYN, uh, wasn't particularly thrilled with the idea of, of turning the baby and doing a breech delivery. So we, um, we set a date for a C-section. And it was there, right on the calendar. We were date setters. And I looked at that and I thought, that's the day, you know, my daughter's coming. And I was in seminary. The semester had just started. I was doing my work and reading. That date was there. And it was coming. I knew it was coming. Peace, safety. We had a date. Then we went for uh, our weekly prenatal checkup a couple weeks before the date. And uh, the doctor at some point, I'm sitting there. Okay, when is this over? I have to get to class. He turns to my wife. He says, well, you're dilated. Uh, ready to do it? And I said, uh, 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 it? What, what's it? Can you go? I'm exegeting the doctor's words. My wife is, to this day, she says, yeah, you're sitting there asking him what it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what? Well, I, I was not ready for that rude intrusion into my life, but we rushed home. I'm driving home numb. I don't remember it, it. We get home and my wife, you know, very calmly, oh, packing things, you know, oh, you know, doing her. She, had, she was ready. She was ready a month ago, okay? And I'm sitting there running around the house crazy. I don't know where I'm going, where I'm coming from. Did you ever see a Roomba? Yeah, that's what was me. I'm running around the house, you know, making, I'm going, accomplishing nothing. Pretty soon I'm in the bathroom sick. My wife gets on the phone with her mother and she says, uh, uh, yeah, the baby's coming early. And what's, what's, what's Mike doing? Uh, he's sick in the bathroom. Make him a cup of chamomile tea. Okay, I'll do that, mom, while I'm in labor and I'll make my, my weak husband a cup of chamomile tea. In other words, I was not ready. I had a date. Peace and safety. But suddenly, labor pains came upon a pregnant woman and I could not escape. I wasn't ready by a long shot. The birth of my daughter came like a thief in the night. And so this is the situation with these people that Paul's describing. This whole class of humanity. The ones on whom the suddenness of Christ's return are going to fall like a thief on the night, in the night. In, the, in verse 4... Um, actually, if you, if you are liable to write in your Bibles, you might want to circle the word but in verse 4. If you're on an iPad or something, don't circle that. It could do damage. I don't think it's covered by Apple warranties. So. But, Paul says, you are not in darkness that this, uh, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Notice this. These people are living in darkness. Um, Verse 7, he says they're drunkards. 
They're sleepers. I'm going to call them the nighters. They're the people who dwell in the night. They like it in the night. These are the people of darkness that he's contrasting them with. Um, They are the ones who are unready for the Lord's return. In contrast to those who are the children of the light. Look at verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now notice what Paul says. He says that this is something they already are. You're children of the light. It's in your nature now. Now, you weren't born children of the light. You were born as a nighter. You were born children of the darkness. You were dark in your understanding. You were foolish. You were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. But, another one of God's great buts in contrast, right? We have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of light. Now we are children of the light. Now how do you make that transition? You work extra hard? You try to do your best? No. Go to church? Join the right church? No. You are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The one who is the author of our salvation. He died for us, rose from the dead. We've sung about it. All right? That's how you go from one to the, no- to the next. And then you become that. You are now a child of light. But Paul does what he often does. That's the reality. That's your new identity. But then he calls them to live in accordance with that new identity. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, the others but let us keep awake and be sober. You see, because as children of the light, children of the day, we're not supposed to be sleeping. We're supposed to be awake. You know, unless you work midnight shift, you're supposed to be awake during the day. Who are the people in our society who are always sleeping all day? The ones who are out late partying, unless they have a night job, I understand. Out late partying, lazy. They're not really managing their life well. Maybe they're recovering from a wild night. That's the metaphor. These people are living in darkness and they have a lifestyle to go along with it. They're dozing, they're inebriating, they're sinking down into the depths of darkness. Verse 7, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. That means alert, aware. My father used to always say, Be aware of what's going on around you. Take it in. You'll avoid the dangers of the night as you are living, not just being, children of the light. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul loves this armor metaphor. He's just getting going in 1 Thessalonians. When he gets to Ephesians much later, He's got the full armor going for us, this whole image. But right now, he's got the love, faith, hope, uh, uh, faith, love, hope. These three theological virtues. Now, these are not merely just internal feelings. Deep down inside, I got some faith. I got such strong faith. It's so deep down in my heart, so deep that it never comes out. Has no evidence of it at all. I got such a strong hope and love. Of course, I don't actually do anything because it's deep down, deep down, down, love in my heart. Love, right? 
that's not really what Paul has in mind. These are not just feelings. Go back to uh, chapter 1. Let's just preach through the whole book while we're at it. No, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Remember, this is where he's reflecting on their past. And he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, verse 3, remembering before God, our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The theological virtues, the love and the faith and the hope, are supposed to be manifesting themselves. Hide it under a bushel? No! You've got to let it shine in the darkness. So these are not to be just naked virtues. These are to be clothed with external work, righteousness. That's how you know that you have these things. And that's part of being prepared. That's part of shining in the darkness as lights. Now, they had to always be ready, clothed with faith, love, and hope. Now look at verses 9 through 11. These come back into play, not explicitly, but thematically. The themes of love, faith, hope. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath. That's good news but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking still about the coming wrath on this earth, the end times. This is hope. This is hope. Verse 10. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's hope. That's faith. Trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ, we too will be raised up anew. We can hope and we can have faith in this. Now look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. That's love. That's the outward manifestation of love, encouraging, exhorting. Brothers and sisters, exhort one another. So the, the contrast that he establishes in this first part is very, very stark. The choice is before us. First choice is, you are either by nature a child of wrath, living in the dark, uh, a nighter, or you are by new nature, by God's grace, a child of light, a lighter. The second choice is, how are you living? Are you kind of getting, you know, is the light seems a little too bright because you got a lot of darkness built up in your life? And you know, My daughter, I go up to wake her up in the morning, you know, boom, 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 go and open up the door, turn on the light, shut the light off, shut the, you know, is this how we are? Or do we bask in the light? So there are lifestyle decisions you have to make every single day of whether you're going to be a nighter or you're going to be a lighter. Living now in light of then. Now, verse 1 through 11 gives us, gives us this contrast. But verses 12 through 22 is going to give us a, uh, three areas of putting this shining in the darkness into practice. These areas probably are specifically related to things that the Thessalonian church dealt with, but what new churches and what young believers uh, tend to need, either by exhortation or by warning, as they are living this Christian life, living as lights in the darkness, uh, lighting up the night. In preview, Paul says that we light up the night, first, by respecting our leaders over us, by loving the brethren around us, and then third, by worshiping God above us. 
So let's look at the first one, verse 12. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, when we talk about the churches, the members of the churches' relationship to the leadership, uh, the elders, the pastors of the church, um, you can, in this culture, you can enter into some dangerous territory. <laughs> um, there are different uh, models of how that's supposed to work um, that somewhat and somewhat not sometimes align with what the Bible says. We are talking here about obedience. We are talking about submission to authority, yes. But here Paul is talking more about the motives, the attitudes. In fact, he even mentions the attitude of love that is supposed to characterize our relationship to those who are in spiritual authority over us. The Greek verb that he uses here, um, uh, uh, respect, my translation says respect those who labor among you. It's actually the Greek word for no, oida. It's a pretty common, you learn that in you know, first semester Greek. Oida, to know something, to be aware, to recognize or acknowledge something. What is it that they're supposed to acknowledge? You're supposed to know, acknowledge those, that group of people who are over you, who labor among you, who admonish you. This first thing, this, they labor among you, um, does not mean they're employed by you. What it means is uh, they, best translation of this is uh, the verb kopiao, it means those who exhaust themselves in laborious toil among you. They exhaust themselves. They wear themselves out ministering among you. Now, years ago, uh, I, I'm an elder in my church, Schofield Memorial Church. Uh, I, uh, you know, we got elders, we have deacons, and God bless the deacons, but we had one deacon who, um, let me just put it nicely, he didn't have a clue, okay, what was going on. Um, he was very practical and very helpful, but he didn't really know what was going on and didn't avail himself to find out. And, you know, to be honest, we didn't help him understand. But he came to me one day and said, you know, um, we're having, we have a really tight budget and uh, we're going to suggest uh, cutting the music uh, pastor's, the worship pastor's position. Uh, just, just, just start discussing this because, uh, I mean, what does he really do? He's getting paid full-time and full-time benefits, and all he's really doing is leading some songs up here and picking some songs and, uh, you know, training the choir once in a while. What is that, six hours a week max? And so, you know, I just listened patiently until, you know, he was done making a fool of himself. And then I said, uh, yeah, what do you think he does Monday through Friday? No, I can't imagine what he's doing. Yeah, well, he's doing premarital counseling, marital counseling. He is uh, actually meeting with people who are struggling with internet pornography. He is handling all the correspondence, the publications, website, audiovisual equipment, uh, dealing with utilities, uh, dealing with facilities issues, hospital visitation, home visitation, homeless people who wander in, benevolence issues. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Well, I would have come up in the deacon meeting, you know, but I'm going to save you some embarrassment, right? The guy had no clue what this guy was doing. He just thought that, you know, when you see a lot of people, a lot of people out there who don't know what goes on in church ministry think pastors only are working when you see them up here. 
<laughs> Pastors, is that true? <laughs> Not by a long shot. Uh, sometimes people's thoughts of what pastors are doing has absolutely no correspondence to reality. So the exhortation is for really for all of us. Have a clue. Take note of their labor. Don't belittle it. Recognize it. Acknowledge that it is distress, trouble, difficulty, burdensome. That's what this word means. This is the work that they're doing. And I don't care if you're in a big church or a small church, that's pastoral ministry. People burn out in pastoral ministry all the time because of this. Now, second thing that the, late, the leaders are doing are they are over you in the Lord. Acknowledge that they are over you in the Lord. This means they have authority. They exercise authority over you. A lot of Christians in America especially want to euphemize this. They want to not euthanize, <laughs> euphemize this language. They want to downplay or soften it or ease it, you know, redefine it. Exercise authority sounds really harsh. Let's call it carry out constitutionally prescribed responsibilities with the spirit of servant leadership and a relationship of accountability to the congregation of voting members. Yeah, that sounds much nicer. It is what it means. <laughs> Exercise authority. Now, it is a different kind of authority. It's not lording it over. True, it is a different kind of leadership, but it is authority nevertheless. Hebrews 13, 17 does say, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, and they are accountable to the fellow elders. They are accountable to the church. No, every individual person is susceptible to, to confrontation and discipline. Nobody's off the hook. That doesn't change the fact, though, that they exercise authority. And third, they admonish you. This uh, verb admonish is nutheteo. It actually is the word we, where we get, um, you may have heard, nuthetic counseling. And so it means uh, to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It is more when people are going astray or could potentially go astray, warning them, stepping in and setting them straight. So Paul is saying, acknowledge this, recognize it, invest or vest in your leadership the kind of authority they need to actually lead and shepherd the church. Then we get to Paul's second verb here. He says, esteem them, esteem them very highly in love. This is an outworking of the church's love, how they deal with their leaders. Now get ready to squirm. Now, <laughs> Esteem just means that, regard them. But the adverb that he puts, connects to this, means quite beyond all measure. It means the highest form of comparison imaginable. I'm getting these from commentaries, okay? Uh, esteem them way beyond what you could imagine. Probably because the tendency for those living in the dark is to undermine, to usurp. To murmur, depose, fire, criticize, demote, usurp, slander. That tends to be how the world deals with authority. And we know this. We still got a little bit of the world in us, don't we? And so the tendency, especially when things aren't going quite well, when there's a little crisis, a little controversy, we tend to want to slip into the, uh, the attitudes and the actions of the nighters rather than of the children of light. So Paul says, how do you light up the night? 
How do you stand as lights in this dark world? The first one is to respect and honor those who are in authority over us. Now, at the end of verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. You can be at peace in a church by respecting the authority over you. But this also transitions us into the next realm, and that is loving the brethren around you. Verses 14 and 15. This is what I call close quarters living. This was especially true in the early church where, man, there was a big difference between Christians and non-Christians, between the children of light and the children of darkness, and you had to stay close. But, uh, you know, the closer you are with people, the more jostling, the more uh, irritating you can be. It's the elevator syndrome, right? You step in an elevator, if there's two people, they stand on totally opposite sides get three. I mean, you, you only stand close to someone if you absolutely have to. And it's just part of, because we know that the closer you get, the more jostling happens. But Paul is exer- exhorting them here in these next couple of verses to authentic, true community. Now, community, this has become a buzzword today. It's on all kinds of uh, um, books and signs and conferences, community groups, community, building community, promoting community. And it is kind of a reaction, and a healthy reaction, to the overemphasis on the individual and my personal quiet time and my personal individual spirituality that really characterized the, the 70s and the 80s literature. And we had kind of forgotten that uh, we're one body, members of one another, and to fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And so this is a good emphasis. But sometimes I think we don't really understand what authentic, true community ends up really looking like. Let me present two models of community for you. Model A is kind of an uncomfortable hodgepodge of people we barely know or really don't like. Uh, They come from different backgrounds, different uh, pay grades, different walks of life, different generations, and they're sort of mashed together into some sort of artificially created community, a Bible study, a ministry team. You know, we didn't choose these people. We got put together. It was engineered for us from the top. You know, when we're there, we just can't wait to get out and be with the people we really like. So that's community model B, and that is comfort, familiarity. We are friends, people whose names we know, whose faces we actually like to see. We have them over for dinner. We have game night with them, etc. That's kind of the community that everybody loves, isn't it? I got everything out of control here. Now, I'm going to suggest that even though that may feel like true community, probably something's lacking there. I'm going to suggest the bold thesis that the more comfortable you feel in your Christian community, it might be a sign of less authentic community. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Let's just think through this for a second. It says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now you can sort of speedboat along the surface of that verse and just move on to the next one. Or you can stop and think about it for a second. Kind of dive down and think. Jews and Greeks did not like each other. 
They came from completely different religious backgrounds, completely different cultural backgrounds. They spoke different languages, dressed differently, ate differently. Free, slave and free, opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. Totally opposite. And Paul's saying, we are brought together. Now, what happens when you bring these together? Discomfort, awkwardness, Jews and Greeks, slaves, free, men, women, Sometimes outright conflict ensues. Take a look at 1 Corinthians, for instance. You know, this uh, idea of close quarters living, true community, getting close enough to actually start irritating each other and have to work through conflicts that are natural when you put people together. It reminds me of a game my brother and I used to play. I know I grew up in, you have to understand, I grew up in northern Minnesota near Hibbing. Anybody happen to be from northern Minnesota? No. They generally don't let people out <laughs> there. You know, I left. Uh, but I, I was, we grew up in northern Minnesota. My parents owned a bait and tackle sporting goods store. That was kind of the, the environment I grew up in. And when you grow up in northern Minnesota, you kind of have to make your own fun, okay? And uh, what we would do is we would trap, um, we, we would trap uh, minnows and bait and things to sell in the bait shop. And we would always catch these, uh, we call them crayfish. You might call them crawfish or crawdads or mud bugs, okay? And we would collect all those things and we'd put them in a bucket. We played a game called crayfish fighting. And we put them in a five-gallon bucket. Now, crayfish have a brain about the size of a grain of rice, okay? Or maybe it's sort of like a swollen spot on a nerve. It's not much of a brain. And you can really, you can convince these crayfish that they're at war with each other. They don't know why they're at war with each other. But you put them in the bucket and you shake the bucket and they start clawing and clawing and crying or whatever crayfish do. And they're trying to kill each other. And eventually, you know, they, they forget just what it is they're fighting about. And they calm down. They just kind of crawl on each other. Then you shake the bucket again. And now we would do that. That would entertain us for a good half hour. Okay? That's what I call close quarters living. That's what it was like in places like Corinth and Thessalonica and Antioch where the Jews and Gentiles and free and slave and male and female, rich, poor, Roman citizen, non-Roman citizen, minority, majority. They're all thrown together and then they're shaken up by persecution or by some kind of trial or some kind of personality conflict or cultural conflict. Some misunderstanding could be innocent enough. But they're forced then to make a choice. Do we do what the nighters do when conflict arises? Do we devour each other? Do we eat each other up like fishes? Or do we transcend the natural by the power of the Spirit and we overcome the We don't run from it. We don't fight. We don't flee. What do we do? If we are Christians who are children of the light, we are called to work through the conflict rather than run away from it. Not easy. Not fun. Usually not, uh, huh, not comfortable. Now, what does Paul say? I've lost my place. There it is. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers. Here's how we're supposed to live in the midst of persecution, conflict, discomfort. Admonish the idle. I don't like the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, weaklings, Right? Think about the attitudes you could have and should have. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. 
Okay, Paul, <laughs> you haven't met Bob, okay? Um, you haven't had to endure his constant hyper-Calvinist rants, okay? Or Vera. Vera will suck the life out of you, Paul. Be patient with all. Why don't you just tell us to spin straw into gold? <laughs> Verse 15, see that no one repays evil uh, pays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Okay, Paul, you've gone too far. You just need to visit my church one Sunday, okay? See, this is living in the light. This is resisting the temptation to default into the darkness. So maybe, you know, you're feeling a little uncomfortable in your place in the church. Maybe your Bible study, your Sunday school class, your fellowship group, and you think, you know, I have this sense that maybe I would fit in somewhere else. Maybe I'd be a little more comfortable elsewhere. Besides, you know, Angie over there, we don't really get along. And Billy, he kind of scowls at me all the time. And that, I don't agree with that guy's doctrine. And that person, did, you know, okay? You can think of all kinds of potential conflicts and discomfort. But is being comfortable really the goal of Christian community? The Spirit of God came to create unity out of diversity, peace out of conflict, healing out of wounded hearts. We're supposed to transcend the natural tendencies to just be wallowing in the darkness. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So what does it look like to live now in light of then? Very practically, we love the brethren around us. That's hard work. It means we resist the temptation to run from conflict and not, 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 not fight and, and we love the fight. We don't want that. We want to work through the conflict however long it takes and however much humility and brokenness it requires. Finally, and I'm going to wrap up with this, we light up the night by worshiping God above us. He is... In rapid-fire mode, so so am I. I'm going to be very quick here. He has little, tiny, itty-bitty little verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. Verse 23. Uh, sorry. Verse 20. What verse am I at? Yeah. Verse 20. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Don't be spirit quenchers. Don't despise prophecies. All of these have transitioned us from respecting leaders, loving others, to now our position of worship, a life of worship before God, praying, seeking to do, uh, uh, rejoicing, praying, thanking in all circumstances. When your leaders disappoint you, when your brothers and sisters offend you, rejoice, pray, give thanks. I always tell my kids, be thankful for what you have, not sad about what you don't have. Okay? And then he says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. That is, have a proper, submissive orientation toward the voice of God. He's speaking to us through scriptures. Be obedient to that. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is holy living. This is an act of your worship before God. So how do we live now in light of then? By respecting the leaders over us in love. By loving the brethren around us. By worshiping God who is far above us. Who, des who desires and, and deserves all of our praise and glory and honor. Whether that is 
in our worship in sun, at Sunday, our orientation toward the Spirit, speaking through Scripture, our prayers, our thanks, our attitudes, our actions, our very lives. In closing, I'm going to close with Paul's own words in verses 23 through 28. It's the benediction, it's the final closing words of his own book. And it is a blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, everything you are, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.